0: me in your scriptures to Numbers chapter 6. We have heard it read already in the midst of our singing, but as we draw our attention back to it, Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 23. I'm sorry, 27. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. You have heard this portion of God's word read. Let's ask now God's blessing upon our hearing of this word. Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your law. Quicken our hearts that we might believe these words and rest upon them. And leave us not, Lord, just hearers of this word, but by your spirit, make us doers as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of years ago, actually around this time, I curiously began reading what C.S. Lewis thought of was his best, at least his favorite novel of, of his own, uh, Till We Have Faces. And it occurred to me as I was well into it that it was somewhat ironic because in the midst of pandemic, I was reading a, an, an account of, a, of an aged queen who wore a mask her entire life. So feel better that You don't have to wear masks anymore. Um, Queen Orwell, she's an aged queen um, who recounts her life and how she came to wear the veil which covered her face. When she was a small girl, her father, the king, told her to put a veil on. He called her curd face because she was ugly. And so she put on the veil, as her father said, but she says as time went on, she found that the veil actually became a source of power. Hear what she says. As years passed, and there were fewer and fewer in the city who remembered my face, the wildest stories got about as to what the veil hid. Some said that it was a frightful beyond endurance, a a pig's, a bear's, a cat's, or an elephant's face. The best story was that I had no face at all. If you stripped off my veil, you'd find emptiness. But another sort said that I wore a veil because I was of such dazzling beauty that if I let it be seen, all men in the world would run mad. Or else that Ungut, who is the god of her realm, that Ungut was jealous of my beauty and had promised to blast me if I went barefaced. The upshot of all this nonsense was that I became something very mysterious and awful. It's an interesting thing to imagine over her whole life that the wearing of this veil, which at first obscured ugliness, according to her father, became a source of mystery and power. And while the veil gave Orwell power over others, what she realized that over time While it made her more and more godlike, it made her less and less human. She lost her humanity in the veiling of her face. And only in the end, when she is compelled to remove her veil, do the gods actually answer her complaint against the gods. It's a beautiful and compelling and very strange in some ways story. But it's relevant to this text we read this morning because, you know, for all people, faces are important. Uh, I began listing popular songs that have the word face in them. I've grown accustomed to your face. Then I saw her face, and so on. Faces matter to people. Face to face is the way in which we communicate the most and the best with one another. Faces matter to people, and so it's not surprising that faces matter to God. In the very beginning of the biblical story, we find Adam and Eve hiding from God's face in the shame of their sin. The end of the biblical story is seeing Jesus Christ face to face and being like Him. And in between the beginning and the end faces are a central theme of the biblical story. In the Psalms, the face of God is the focus of delight. And it is also a horror for the sinner. Uh, The absence of God's faith is an indication of God's displeasure. And the psalmist says in Psalm 27:1, Lord, you have said, seek my face and your face do I seek. Here you have in number six, the acme of what the Bible teaches about the face of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift, make His face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And what I would like to see from this text this morning, especially in its context in the whole Bible, is just simply this. God made us, God made you and me with faces so that His face could shine on ours. That God made you and me, He made people with faces so that His face could shine on ours. And therefore, we must follow the psalmist's injunction to seek the Lord's face. So let's look at the Numbers chapter 6 uh, and, and, and see how that is true. First of all, I want to give you a sense of the context of God's gaze. I have three Cs, and this is the first C. These will be fairly brief Cs, and then we'll make some applications of this larger lesson. The first C is the context of God's gaze. Uh, Number six has a backstory, a prequel. Uh, I saw West Side Story many times before I realized that there was Romeo and Juliet behind it. Uh, and so there's a backstory to number six. I mentioned Adam and Eve hiding from the face of God in the garden. Uh, but uh, you also might remember uh, Jacob, who is caught between the the wrath of his betrayed brother Esau and the wrath of his uh, uh, father-in-law and, and he's left between these two forces, and he, he returns back to the promised land with Esau waiting on him. And it was there that he met a stranger in the night, all by himself. He had sent his family and his servants and his livestock all ahead, and there by the brook of Jabbok, in the night a stranger appeared to him, a stranger that Jacob tried to best, but instead begged to bless. And that stranger, of course, was God himself. And at the breaking of the day, God dislocated Jacob's hip and went away, leaving Jacob with a new name. And that name of that place was then called Penuel, the face of God, because Jacob said, I've seen the face of God and lived. You might also think of Exodus chapters 33 and 34, Israel had built the golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai while Moses was up on the mountain and God was displeased and Moses pled with God. In fact, one of the things Moses pled was we will not go to the promised land unless your presence goes with us and the word presence in Hebrew is the same word for face. You see, Moses knew that to have the promised land without God was to have nothing, but to have God was to have everything. And so he pled for the face of God, if you will, the presence of God, not to depart from Israel. And God granted his prayer, if you remember the story. And then Moses asked a favor of God. He said, God, show me your glory. And God said, no one shall see my face and live. And that's when God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and his glory passed by. And even though Moses spoke to God in the tent of the tabernacle face to face as a man speaks to a friend, that tent was always filled with the smoky presence of the incense. So even Moses never saw the face of God as God. That's the context of the ironic blessing here in Numbers chapter 6. But besides that context, the story of God's face, if you will, you also have God just having redeemed Israel out of slavery in Egypt, 400 years of servitude, and he has, he has saved them by a mighty outstretched arm. He has destroyed the powers that enslaved them and brought them into the wilderness. And right before our text in Numbers 6, you have the Israel consecrating themselves presenting themselves as holy to the Lord so now you have the people of God in the presence of God with God's servant Aaron now commissioned forever to pronounce this benediction with raised hands that the face of God would shine on his people that's the context of God's gracious gaze here in number six what's the connotation of the gaze or in other words what does it mean well, uh, I mentioned some Psalms earlier, but Israel would have understood this. The face of God, while not being a literal face, is an expression uh, of, of God's favor in His presence. Uh, the psalmist talks about the face of God being the source of joy, uh, the face of God being salvation, the face of God um, being vindication from shame. Oh, Lord, look on us. Don't hide your face from us anymore. And even when David prayed in repentance in Psalm 51, he begged God to turn his faith from his sin. So the face of God is the highest joy. It's life. But let's, let's look more in detail at the words of the blessing itself. If you look with me, the blessing is, is made up of three lines. Three lines. And they are spoken in the context of God's chosen Servant Aaron, the high priest. So, I want the first thing before we look at the first line is to see that this blessing is covenantal. It's covenantal. It's the God who has sworn to be a God to his people, who has laid upon them both the blessings and the cursings with the requirements of his law but it's spoken in the context of a bond, of a covenant bond between God and his people. This irrevocable commitment God has made to his people. You know, the writer of Hebrews says, God swore to Abraham by two unchangeable things. God's word is an oath, but then God added his oath to his words. So that God is a covenant God, a committed God, a God who will not abandon his people as we've sung already this morning. But let's look at the three lines. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now, this is very highly stylized in the Hebrew. Uh, These are sentences of three, five, and seven words each. And each line is 15, 20, and 25 consonants each. What you have here is a, is a literary style that, that, that suggests like stairways going up to somewhere, like stairways ascending into the presence of God. In other words, the ironic blessing is to draw God's people toward his presence. But not only that, each of the lines of the blessing have an action and a result. Look at this with me. The Lord bless you, and the consequence of that blessing is God will keep them. I noticed in our, uh, our uh, previous uh, song interdicted by, um, by Scripture readings from Psalm 121, if you, as, as I have done, if you circle the word keep and keeper in that Psalm 121 reading, you'll see how big of a deal is that God is Israel's keeper. And keeper doesn't just mean to provide for or to provide a place for, but keep is actually a word that often is understood as guard. So God's blessing included the promise or the result, if you will, that God would be the guardian and protector of his people. He's a mighty fortress. He is a rock that is high and a refuge. He is our protector so that, as Romans 8 says, nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ. So the Lord blesses and the consequence is his protection. Then the Lord makes his face to shine upon his people and consequently they are recipients of his grace. The favorable gaze of God is the source of the grace that God's people have the kindness, the, 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 the care, the, the forgiveness. It's more than just a legal forgiveness term, but it is God's favorable disposition toward us because he has shined his face upon us. Augustine, in, chap- in, uh, in talking about John chapter 1, describes the, the light which has come into the world. That enlightens every man, and he 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 points out how every light in the world is only a light as it reflects the source, the one true source of light. And so, just as every planet, every 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 reflective thing in the whole universe is only derivative of the sun's light, so also any light that we see in the world is a reflection of the true source of light, even in the image of God, which we are as mirrors of God's gracious gaze. And then the third line, the Lord lift up his countenance, Uh, sort of a repetition of the shining of his face. But but now you see uh, from a a static, the Lord uh, make his face to shine, now to a dynamic, the Lord lift up his countenance. On you. The action of God turning his gaze toward his people so that they are not cowered in fear. That they are not ashamed as Adam and Eve were in the garden, but instead turning his face upward, lifting his gaze up toward us so that we experience what the Bible describes as the highest state of human happiness and blessedness that can be attained or imagined which is shalom peace. Shalom means not just absence of conflict, but it means fullness. It means health and beauty and abundance and and joy. It means the happiness that the whole world looks for but can't find because it doesn't look to the source of genuine happiness, which is the God of peace. And so these stair steps not only lead us to the gracious gaze of God, but these stair steps lead us to the highest estate of human well-being, blessedness. That's the, the content or the connotation, if you will, of God's gracious gaze. They're like waves breaking till they, till they overwhelm us with the goodness and abundance of God. So the third C. The consequence. What are the consequences of God's gaze? Adam hid. Moses longed to see. Jacob wrestled in order to see. But now we see in the ironic blessing the very thing that they desired, which is the face of God. But it doesn't end there because the very last line of Numbers 6 says uh, verse 27 says, so they shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. We bear the name of the Lord because his face has shined on us. We bear the divine name. The part of a person's body that by, by which they are more known than any other part of their person, the face, is now the place where the blessing of God in his shining face is directed. So, I want to contemplate just for a moment the consequences of of this gracious gaze of God. You know, um, you've heard the expression the eye is a window to the soul. Um, uh, Award winning portraitist Catherine Prescott uh, has actually uh, challenged this. Uh, she, She said the mouth is more important than the eyes. The mouth is more important than the eyes. Uh, because as soft tissue, they're more flexible than the eyes. The the eyes can indicate maybe six or seven emotions, she says. But the mouth, without the mouth to enforce the eyes, it's not always clear what the eyes mean. You know, the eyes are where we might look, but it's the mouth which actually reveals the person. And so she says to know a person, you can't simply know them by their eyes, but you must know them by their whole face, their entire face. And so God in offering us the highest state of human happiness shines his face on us. So there are three generally things I would like us to make for application from this. The first thing is simply this, Long for the look, long for the look, desire it. It's the pearl of great price. Uh, the, the, seeing God face to face is described as the beatific vision, the, the highest end of human experience. And, and that's the end of the story as the Bible teaches it, that, that we see God face to face. But you see here in the middle of the desert, the, 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 the desert of Sinai, God shines his face on his people to be desired. And this is why Psalm 27 says what it does. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And so the psalmist says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Because it is the face of our maker that shines in the ironic blessing. I don't know if you've ever um, been in puppy love or love or something like it, or junior high love, or whatever you might call it, but just wanted to be looked upon by somebody that you had deep affection for. And, and uh, maybe you're sitting in a coffee shop on a college campus and you're, you know, you're looking over, you're doing the uh, kind of without turning the head looking and and you see the other person look back and then you look away, and then I can imagine the Clements meeting this way you know um, and uh then uh you know and and this thing go the the ping pong ball goes back and forth a little bit until there 's a facial recognition and and then the heart sings and it 's love and and uh and then absence from that face is produces longing and and even at the end of life, when that face is gone until they shall be seen again in, in a new world, you know, seeing the face, is, a, is a, the desire to see the face is, is a source of deep, deep, deep longing of those we love. And here God says, seek my face. And the psalmist says, your face, Lord, do I seek. Do you long for the presence of God? Is, is God's face something you ache for? So whether when you're neglecting God in your life, whether you're, you're doing something displeasing to his will and you sense the, that covering of shame and, and, and then you begin to think once again of what it's like to be in exile and away from your maker, the Lord says, seek my face. And will you say, Lord, your face I do seek? Because the news has gotten even better since the days of Aaron. As we read 2 Corinthians at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, this, this is the realization of the ironic blessing. Because in the face of Jesus Christ, the, the glory of God shines upon us. John chapter 1 begins, um, you know, the glory of God became flesh and dwelt among us and, and um, full of grace and truth. And... Uh, and, and uh, uh, while the law came through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ, and, and, and this one Jesus came from literally the very bosom or the very lap of the Father. The consequence is this. What Moses longed to see at Sinai, we see in Jesus Christ. We see God's glory better, more fully than Moses did. Because he has been revealed to us in the new covenant with the giving of the spirit so that we see the glory of God in the face of the revealed son, Jesus Christ. And it's to long for the face of Christ because he's the one upon whom we look, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, that that as we look upon Him, we are transformed, what? From one degree of glory into another. To gaze upon the glory of God in the face of Christ is not just to enjoy the blessedness of God's presence, but it's to be made more and more and more like God. And blessed are those who mourn and hunger and so forth as we know from the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount, because what they shall see God. Uh, a few years ago, I was in Chengdu, one of those great cities of China, uh, and I went. I, I went to the Bianlian. I'm sure my Mandarin is horrible, so please forgive me if you know the Bianlian or face-changing dance. It's part of uh, Sichuan opera tradition. Dancers in traditional costumes twirl and spin, and and they have these elaborate masks. And almost if by magic, they'll wave their hand in front of their face and their face will change. And some faces look, some of the masks look like warrior masks, and other ones almost clown-like. And what you realize is the different masks reveal different moods of the person. And even re-watching some of those performances on video, I can't tell how it's done. It's an ancient art practiced within family traditions. And it's, it's amazing to watch. But think of this. We live in a cultural moment where what people believe about who they are is really just one long dance of mask changing. We're told, be who we want to be, or be what makes us authentic. But look, if, if you can be anything, this is, the, this is the, the tragedy of the postmodern condition of the self. If you can be anything, then who are you? You're just a graphic t-shirt pulled out of a drawer to be changed from one day to another. If, 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 if you're here and you've, you've never come to grips with who God is in Christ and what, what, what restorative work the gospel does to remake us into who God made us in the first place, here's the good news. You don't have to get up every day and try to figure out who you are. Because the creator of your face is the redeemer of your face because he has shown his face on us in his son, Jesus Christ. And you don't have to be lost looking for who you are. Here it is. The image of God. God's beloved child. The shining face of God ultimately revealed in the face of his son, Jesus Christ. It says, God loves you and has made you, and is remaking you into a glorious, beautiful creature reflecting God's light, longing for God's face. We live in a selfie world where all our selfies are are portraits of who we want people to think we are or who we believe we are, And a selfie is no better than a face in a mediated mud puddle. The bathroom is the most frequent photography studio because it has a mirror. And everything is a self-portrait. But you don't have to settle for a self-portrait. And you don't have to settle for presenting yourself to the world as someone you're not. See, just like Queen Orwell, we make masks our whole lives long, either to reveal something that's not there or to hide something that is. And our Maker shines His face on us through His beloved Son, Jesus. Look long for God's gracious gaze. And that means looking at ourselves differently looking at ourselves, sort of the way uh, Gerard Manny Hopkins depicts it in his beautiful poem, Pied Beauty. Praise God for dappled things, he said. Praise God for earthen vessels full of priceless treasures. Praise God for images of God broken, bruised and broken by the fall, but now being remade in the shape of God's Son. So longing for God's look. The second application I'd like to make for you is to we look at others differently in light of the gracious gaze of God. We look at others differently. And this is, this is kind of twofold. First of all, it's looking at dif- others differently, but it also includes looking at different others. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. But when we realize that we are the the broken images of God upon whom God's gracious gaze is now extended, we also begin to trace the image of God as the Bible teaches us to find it in others. Psalm 115, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Uh, Why do the nations say where is their God? Their God is in the heavens, he does what he pleases, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. The gods of the nations, they have eyes, but cannot see and noses cannot smell. And it goes on mocking the gods of the nations. But why would the nations say to Israel, where is your God? Well, in every people of the ancient world, if you went to the temple and pulled back the curtain, there would be a statue in there. But there was no statue in Israel's temple. There was no image of their God, why? because of what Genesis 1 and 2 teach us. Every human being is an image of the Creator. Every human person is an image of God. So what's the measure of our worship? It's not just what happens in this room, but the measure of our worship is how we treat His image on the street. James gets this right. James 3 says, with the tongue you bless God and you curse man who is made in his image. All ethics is grounded in ontology, which is a seminary way of saying how we live is a reflection of what we believe reality is. If you believe every human being is in the image of God, then that that infects all the ways in which you look at other people, even people you don't particularly like. I mean, I love my friends. That's easy. But loving my enemies is a whole other matter, isn't it? John Gillespie McGee's poem, perhaps some of you know it, High Flight. I'll be doing a funeral sometime in the next, I don't know. There's a retired strategic air command old airman that's a friend of mine and he's got terminal cancer and he called me and he said I want you to do my funeral and I said when can we put it on the calendar and he jokingly said "Uh, not yet he wants this poem read we'll read it before the service Reagan quoted it at the memorial of the challenger crew it has that line we slipped the surly bonds of earth and touched the face of God But that's not what the bible teaches us. Matthew 25, the only verse in which Jesus called himself the king, he told these his fathers, he said, you visited me in prison, you fed me when I was hungry, you clothed me when I was naked. And he said, when did we do this? He said, when you did it to the least of these you did it to me. How do we worship our king? we bow before his images we serve his image which is one another and every human being that we meet 2 years ago this month my my father-in-law an 88-year-old german farmer and people asked me tell me about your father-in-law i said he was an 88-year-old german farmer that pretty much covers it farming over east of st louis in illinois farm the same farm for 60 years. He'd been on an end loader the day before, had a stroke, and sat in, um, in uh, hospice care for nine days while we attended to him and waited on him. Prayed with him, sang to him, spoke to him, knowing that medically there was probably uh, nothing he was hearing from us. But I did my part uh, to keep watch with him. And uh, and as I was sitting by him one day alone, um, you know, I was looking at his hands, his hands that had, uh, he had two tools, a cutting torch and a hammer. If you've ever worked with a farmer like that, there's nothing in between. Um, he was not subtle about anything. Those those hands which I had known for the 30 plus years that I'd been married to Vicky, And I noticed that I wasn't. I was averting my gaze from his face. His uh, his face was somewhat drawn from the stroke, and I was averting my gaze. I think for two reasons. One, it made me uncomfortable. But the other reason, I, I I felt that he would be embarrassed to be seen like that. And you know, I think for reasons related to what I'm sharing with you this morning, I said to dignify him, I must look at his face, and I did, because he was an image of the Creator, both in life and in pending death. And if we let the image of God inform our ethics, not just with one another, not just how we love and serve one another—tonight I'm going to talk about First Corinthians 12 and the body of Christ—but how, re- how we look at people in the world as image bearers of God, even our enemies— our light will shine in darkness and rise like the noonday sun. But not only look at others differently, look at different others, looking at people that we don't notice. I don't know if you remember that iconic sign for the 1968 garbage worker strike in Memphis. The inhumane conditions under which garbage workers were being killed and maimed by the equipment they were using and, and, and the one garbage worker that, it was the summer, it was the strike that actually brought Martin Luther King to Memphis in the summer of 68. And there was, there's this photo of this one garbage worker holding over his head a sign which simply said, I am a man. See, that's what the face of God would have us learn. So not just looking at others differently, but seeing people that we don't see otherwise seeing that they're there, acknowledging their existence, granting them humanity in our hearts. This is what the ironic benediction teaches us, especially as it is now ours in fullness in the, reveal, in the revealed face of God's Son, Jesus Christ. We always have attempted, since living east of Eden, to put masks on our faces, and even to mask the humanity of others. But the face of God has shined on us. The, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone on our faces in Jesus Christ. And so God made us with faces that his might shine on ours and therefore we are to seek his face. I'll finish by just telling my first pastoral story, thinking about your ordination 21 years ago. When I was first ordained at Sutter Presbyterian Church down in St. Louis, just kind of across the street from Ferguson, Missouri, uh, my my senior pastor boss told me to go visit a bunch of uh, elderly people, shut-ins, and one he told me to visit was Mrs. Grace Finley. Mrs. Finley was a widow And the pastor wanted me particularly to go see her because she was um, battling uh, a a face cancer. In fact, uh, she had had some surgeries so that uh, there was a great opening in the front of her face. Uh, She was fitted with a prosthesis. So the pastor said, please call Mrs. Finley before you go so she can be ready for you to come. And I went, finally, after much delay, I'd rather be at the coffee shop preparing sermons like most young pastors, um, dreaming about all the great things I was gonna do for people while neglecting actually doing things for people. And uh, so finally I went and Mrs. Findley, uh, she had baked cookies and there was lemonade and I sat and it was the most wonderful thing. She, She was so bright eyed and full of faith and it turned out to be a blessing to me So I decided I would go back, you know, a few weeks later. And I don't know whether I ranged ahead or whether it's some confusion or perhaps whether she just wanted to open this young guy's eyes a little more. She came to the door without her prosthesis on. And I remember wanting to look away. But as we sat down together, it was the same bright eyed and brilliant faith in God's goodness. So that I, I saw in her cancer-ridden face the face of God. God made us with faces so that His face would shine on ours. And This means we are to look at ourselves differently, look at others differently, and even look at others we don't see apart from having our eyes open. Will you pray with me? Lord, open our eyes to look around us, to see the goodness of God and the glory of God revealed in people. Lord, thank you for renewing us after the image of your Son, for lifting our faces to look upon yours so that we stand in your presence blameless with great joy. And now help us, God, to look upon your glory in our neighbors, and in one another so that we might dignify and glorify the humanity that you have instilled in them. For We pray this in your son's name. Amen.